This is a Federal News Network podcast. The White House's 2023 budget proposal includes a big pay raise for employees at the Transportation Security Administration. It's part of a long-running effort by unions and some members of Congress to secure better pay for TSA's frontline workforce. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, how much? How big a raise would they get? Yeah, they're looking for a 30% pay raise for about 50,000 transportation security officers who work at airports nationwide. And the latest update from the Bureau of Labor Statistics from May of 2021 put the average annual salary for airport security screeners at $46,000 or thereabouts. So that, that amounts to a $14,000 increase on average, so a pretty big increase for salaries there for airport security screeners. The budget also includes a 20% pay raise for federal air marshals and pay raises for other TSA positions like canine handlers and administrative jobs that aren't so defined, but they're basically to ensure that they're paid commensurately to their federal colleagues. And so if Congress approves this request, TSA Administrator David Pekoski said the agency would implement the pay plan within 90 days or so. And so that would mean these pay raises could kick in as soon as next January. And so they hope to fund this how? Just with a bigger appropriation? Well, not just a bigger appropriation. So TSA's total proposed budget for 2023 is $9.7 billion. And that's a $1.4 billion increase above 2022. The bulk of that would pay for this increased funding for pay and benefits. But the White House is proposing to offset that about billion and a half increase by letting TSA keep all of the passenger security fees that it collects at airports or for for travel, rather than sending a portion, about a third every year to the U.S. Treasury as a federal deficit reduction measure. So that's a big legislative proposal to actually pull this new pay plan off so that TSA employees can get paid a lot more. And you can't be able to pay them $5 to skip a pat-down or something to go into the kitty? Not yet. All right. And what is Congress, any reaction so far? Again, this just dropped last week, but have you heard any congressional reaction to this plan? Well, this has been been a big imperative for Democrats for a long time and unions, as you mentioned at the top. And, And so one of the big proponents these days is House Homeland Security Committee Chairman Benny Thompson from Mississippi. He applauded the proposal and called on Congress to fully enact it. He also touted his rights for the TSA Workforce Act. He introduced this bill last year. It would actually eliminate the special personnel authorities that currently govern workplace conditions for TSA employees and bring them under the Title V personnel system, bring them under the general schedule salary system that applies to most other federal workers. So there's support there from an important committee chairman. This is something that his his ranking member, John Katko, Republican from New York, has also been supportive of. But it will be interesting to see if Democrat Democrats can get enough Republicans on board to approve this big budget pay raise or this big pay raise for TSA employees. Because that does raise a question. If you say, well, now you're part of the GS system under Title V, well, what level of GS? Essentially, they want to bring them in line with, you know, the the sort of experience levels that, that apply to GS and apply those to TSA officers who are who are federal employees, too. But when TSA was established a couple of decades ago in the wake of 9-11, they actually created a whole different personnel system, a whole different pay system for TSA employees. And essentially, this is part of a, a broader effort to bring TSA employees into the the sort of normal federal employee system and for pay and benefits and the like. 
And would they be equivalent to other law enforcement people? That's right. That's right. They would be more equivalent to perhaps a, a, a Customs and Border Protection officer or in, who's, who's also under the Department of Homeland Security. And there's a lot of other law enforcement uh, employees who are under the who are under DHS and, and TSA is, of course, under DH, DHS as well. And Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has directed TSA to expand collective bargaining rights for those officers, in addition to developing this pay plan to, to pay them in line with the general schedule. So this is just one part of a broader effort across the, the within the Biden administration to essentially raise these officers up to a level that's more in line with their counterparts across the federal government. All right. And uh, what else do we know about the TSA writ large request that the Biden administration has put in? What else do they want for TSA? A big portion of that big budget increase would go toward increasing pay and benefits. But another portion, about $121 million, would cover the cost of converting pay systems, as well as establishing a labor relations support capability so that the TSA can expand the collective bargaining framework as Secretary Mayorkas directed last year. TSA says they need essentially more funding to pay more lawyers to actually implement this expanded collective bargaining agreement. TSA is also looking to increase the TSA wor- TSO workforce by 2,500 positions in response to an increase in air travel with the pandemic slowly, hopefully, winding down a little bit, and that would require an additional $243 million in 2023 for that big hiring spree. There's also money in there for technology, for property screening, and on-person screening algorithm development, which is an interesting new technology that the the agency is experimenting with. So a lot of other increases in there in addition to the pay and benefits. Yes, because they have a lot of initiatives going to try to keep shaving that screening process time. I read one statistic not long ago where you know every 2 seconds you save screening someone translates to you know an hour less at the other end of the line this kind of thing they have good knowledge of of the metrics there for getting people through and then with respect to the bargaining and so on not only pay but flexibility of work schedules that's been a big bugaboo right for the TSA workers that's right you know the american federation of government employees says that TSA workers just don't have the same flexibilities that other federal employees have under this this separate system that i mentioned and so things like you know, child care, the ability to, to have child care for, for, for your kids if you're a TSA officer is a little bit different, a little bit less than if you were a, 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 a schedule or a Title V employee. So that's all a part of this, this effort that, you know, DHS is directed to have TSA expand collective bargaining rights for TSOs. They've drafted an agreement, but they have yet to, you know, sign a, a, an agreement that would allow them to expand collective bargaining. TSA's position is they need funding first to implement the agreement. And I guess people to that would begrudge the TSA agents that money, we ought to ask them, would you spend eight hours a day dealing with 6,000 crabby people? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, uh, you know, TSA officers have been on the front lines during COVID, right, during a very tough time trying to reopen and having travel with with masks and things like that and having a lot of difficulties with with certain passengers. They've been having to bear the brunt of that work in addition to just having to deal with the difficulties that are inherent in a job that that involves security screening. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.